My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. For people who belong to unions or who support the labor movement, it is among the worst things you can be called. Scab. To desperate folks trying to make some money by doing a job that a company needs doing, the term is replacement worker. Thank you very much. No matter what you call these people, though, banning the use of bringing in workers to replace union members who are on strike or locked out has been a huge priority of the labor movement in Canada for decades. And now, with newfound strength coming out of the pandemic and a liberal government only propped up by the labor-friendly NDP, they're finally getting what they want. Sort of. The bill would ban employers from bringing in replacement workers during a strike in federally regulated workplaces, among other things. There are, to be sure, loopholes and exemptions here, and there are questions to be answered. But a law that ends the process of staffing up when a strike looms puts a great deal of power back into the hands of unions. How will they use it? Where are those exemptions and those inevitable loopholes? And when workers walk out and there is no option to keep the work going, no matter how long the strike lasts, how will the public experience that? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Reevely is an Ottawa correspondent for The Logic. Hi, David. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me. I guess where I want to start is just by asking you uh, about the origins of Bill C-58 that we're going to discuss today. Where did it come from? How long has something like this been in the works? Well, it depends how far back you want to pull. Something like this has been in the works for 20 years. It's long been, and and it's even longer than that, it has been something that uh, unions have generally wanted, is restrictions on employers' ability to bring in replacement workers to to minimize or outright eliminate the uh, effects of strikes. The NDP have called for it actively for many years. Uh, The Liberals put it in their 2021 election platform, and then it became one of the required elements in the NDP liberal deal, uh, the supply and confidence arrangement. So uh, the deal was that it had to be introduced by the end of this calendar year, and the Liberals have met that deadline. For a long time, they talked about it as something that they wanted to do, but it never quite made it to the top of their priority list. Now it has. I realize that maybe before we uh, get into the specifics of this legislation, we should explain the dynamic here. This has been called uh, anti-scab legislation. What is a scab and, and how does that figure into uh, labor negotiations or labor action? Yeah, that's an important question. Scab is the uh, unionist term. Some people consider it a slur. Some people consider it appropriately derogatory. The term for someone who works doing the, the the work of a union member during a strike or a lockout. 
So if you are doing that work, then you are undermining the power of the job action, uh, whether it be a, a strike called by the union or a lockout imposed by an employer in response to union demands. But either either way, I mean, generally speaking, labor disruptions are are because of you know the employer wanting something and and the workers saying no. And if a strike or a lockout does not actually stop the meaningful operations at the employer, then it's much, much less powerful. And so there have been times in Canadian labor history and labor history elsewhere where replacement workers have crossed picket lines and worked in mines and warehouses and factories and any unionized workplace you can imagine. And the workers who are on the picket line, whether they have chosen to be there or the employers put them there, naturally get extremely angry about it because mm-hmm. it prolongs the, the the work stoppage and undermines their their power when it comes to collective bargaining. So that's why unions call them scabs and why employers prefer to call them replacement workers. Much nicer term. Right. And why would uh, unions and those who support them say legislation against this sort of thing is needed? Because they want to retain their power uh, when it comes to a work stoppage. You know, a work stoppage imposed by the employer should have a cost. A work stoppage imposed by the, the, the union should have a cost. It should essentially bring operations to a halt. And if it doesn't, then it dramatically reduces the, the bargaining power that you get from that situation. If you're a union that's on strike and the employer brings in re- non-union replacement workers, probably for cheaper, certainly cheaper than the union members would work, you know, considering total compensation under whatever deal they're trying to get. If the employer can do that, then the union doesn't really have very much power at all. And so stopping that is a way of enhancing union power. So it makes perfect sense as something that that unions want to pursue. So to what extent then will this new legislation accomplish that? In broad strokes, what does a Bill C-58 do? It essentially bans the use of replacement workers or scabs in federally regulated workplaces. And uh, we can talk about exactly what those are. Companies that use replacement workers in that during a strike or a lockout can be fined up to $100,000 a day. Relatively few businesses would consider that a worthwhile cost of doing business, I think. And it, there are a couple of other elements to it. It um, restricts who can do union work during a strike, there are people who can, you know, typically managers are filling in for, for union workers, trying to keep operations going mm. during strikes and lockouts. It limits the number of people in an organization or an enterprise who can do that. Uh, and there's some material in there about uh, that's not about replacement workers directly, about establishing what essential services are, what sort of, I think it's called a maintenance protocol, sort of the, the work that can be done during a strike or a lockout that would normally done by union members that has to be done for you know to maintain health or safety. Imagine a strike at a, I don't know, a nuclear power plant or something. Somebody's got to be in there right. making sure that the thing doesn't melt down, even if the, the main operations are, are not going, that kind of thing. And we can get into the details of that, but maybe just first, because you mentioned it federally regulated. So who does this apply to? Who is exempt from it? What types of businesses are we talking about here? We are talking about businesses that are well regulated by the federal government that, that covers about a million workers in total. Apparently, uh, these are federal numbers. About 300,000 workers are unionized who are federally regulated. 
And these are generally businesses that are involved in either interprovincial or international operations. So uh, we're talking about transportation, that's the big one, the railways, ports, interprovincial trucking companies. And we've seen a couple of recent actions in terms of ports and, and lakes, right? We sure have. There's a big strike, uh, as you know, in the Vancouver port. There was one a little before that at the Port of Montreal. There have been smaller, shorter-lived, but real strikes at um, CN. And there's just generally been a lot more agitation on the part of unionized transportation workers, goods-moving workers, supply chain workers, generally because they say, you know, we continued working throughout the pandemic, you know, night and day, moving the goods, fighting the, the supply chain bottlenecks, and you, employers, have you know, made pretty good money off it, uh, and we would like our share. And environments where the, the negotiations have not gone the way they wanted, yeah, there have been strikes. A couple of other areas that are like less consequential but still federally regulated, banking, telecommunications. There have been at least sounds of, of strikes at some telecom companies, although those are generally not as damaging to people who are not participating as as people in the goods moving industries, where the network of the moves stuff in this country is huge, but it is also fairly fragile. Mm -hmm. And there are not a lot of alternatives the way there are. You know, if a whole bunch of people at Bell go on strike, you know, people can switch to a different carrier, generally speaking. That hurts Bell a lot more than it hurts others. But in supply chains, in railways, in trucking, in ports, uh, and shipping, air travel as well, those are industries where other people are profoundly affected by work stoppages. This may be a simple question, but when we look at some of these recent labor actions or we anticipate ones in the future, um, and let's say transportation or, or things that impact the supply chain, just because that's something that everybody feels, what would be different about those labor actions now as a result of this bill? Can you just kind of walk us through like what would actually happen during the period leading up to a labor action? In the period leading up to a labor action, the employer would not be able to bulk up its staff with non-union workers uh, in other corners of the operation in anticipation of using them during a strike. You know, once notice of intention to bargain is given, so the beginning of the collective bargaining process, long before typically there are any strike votes or, or let alone an actual strike or a lockout, the, the bill would restrict who could do what's called struck work uh, during a, a strike or a lockout. So they wouldn't be able to hire people after notice to, to bargain has been given and then have those people do union work. There would have to be the agreement early on about the, the, the maintenance protocol, these sort of essential operations that people would be allowed to do. And then it probably would not directly affect the course of negotiations as long as they're going well. But I think the impact would be felt if negotiations started to go poorly, because this would be a, an arrow taken out of the quiver of management. So what would happen, and I ask this knowing there are uh, a number of them, in a company that had a mix of uh, unionized workers and non-unionized workers already hired? You know, we're not talking about beefing up before uh, some kind of action here. This is, I think, what we're calling the maintenance activities or maintenance protocol. Could those employees then, the non-unionized ones, be assigned those kind of duties? Like, how how would that work? Because I, I don't think there are a ton of huge companies that have everybody unionized or nobody. That's true. But in general, already in the labor code, if you are a non-union employee, so that is not a manager, 
then the union would have jurisdiction over that work. And so companies generally cannot assign non-union employees to do union work during a stoppage. There's, you know, typically a little bit of stuff done around the edges, but fundamentally, you know, if you're you run a terminal at the port of Vancouver and your your dock workers are in one union and your bookkeeping staff are not, then you're not going to have the, the, the accountants going out and unloading ships. Right. They're not going to be qualified, but also they're probably not going to be enough of them and it's just not going to be practical. So th- that is generally not a, a problem now, but to the extent that it would be, those would be considered replacement workers uh, if they're doing union work. And it actually, I think this is kind of a stealth component of the bill. Sometimes when things get really, really ugly, what you'll see is, and this really does not happen very much, but it does happen, employers will sort of post conditions, basically inviting striking workers or locked out workers to abandon the union, just come in and work. Hmm. And, you know, under the terms of our final offer. And the, uh, the idea there is basically to break the union and have People cross their own union's pick and line and and come in and do the do the job, and yeah, you know, sometimes there are there are union members who do you know they don't believe in what their union is is fighting for. They're required to be a member, but they don't they don't trust it. They you know cross the pick and line from day one. In other cases, after a strike or lockout has gone on, the employer will post conditions and invite people to come in and work under them, and then presumably you know, later on vote to decertify the union. All of that would be considered replacement work now, so it would not be allowed under this bill. What's been the reaction in general to this bill? It's huge in labor circles, but I think maybe part of the reason why you haven't seen a lot of fuss about it is the reaction is kind of completely predictable. Unions have wanted this for years. They are generally very happy. The one complaint is that it it doesn't go far enough. Employers are not happy about it. The Chamber of Commerce and the Federation of Independent Business and so on say exactly what you would expect them to say. Right. So there, there isn't a lot of novelty there, I guess, in the sense of making news. The argument from the the employer side is that labor negotiations are delicate and the product of a delicate balance of forces. And their limits are, are are put on these things very carefully that to make them go as smoothly as possible, that kind of an inherently unpleasant process to make it go as smoothly as it could. And imposing a ban on replacement workers disrupts that balance. So the argument is that it would lead to more strikes and particularly more strikes because unions would have more power. And they say, like, yes, we accept that there's a right to bargain collectively. There is a right to strike. We have the right to lock people out. We almost never use replacement workers, but the fact that we could is an important factor that unions have to consider when making their decisions and that it leads to relatively more moderate positions. That's the employer side argument. And they point to BC and Quebec, which have rules about this at the provincial level. And that has led, they say, to more labor disruptions. On the union side, and what the government argues explicitly, what the labor minister Seamus O'Regan says explicitly, is that the threat of replacement workers is disruptive to labor peace. And actually using replacement workers is kind of a, a nuclear attack on workers. And the results of that lead to labor disruptions that are longer and uglier and take longer to heal after. So in a way, they can both be right. A ban on replacement workers could lead to more strikes and lockouts, and it could lead to strikes and lockouts that are shorter. 
So they're they're not necessarily mutually exclusive positions. The question is just kind of which do you which which do you consider more important? Could it also lead to an increase uh, in the number of union formations? You know, we've covered a lot on this show, um, sort of the the rise from the dead, I guess, of the labor movement over the past couple of years, both in terms of actions and unionizations in places uh, like Starbucks. Is this kind of legislation likely to give that a shove? Where does it fit in the broader context of the current resurgent labor movement? I think it is a move that would be, I mean, unions like it. Anything that increases the power of unions, I think, makes you know unionizing more attractive. Right. And it is kind of symbolically a, a, a gesture of support for organized labor. So I think that's another reason why they like it. I don't know how much it affects the underlying dynamics that have led to increased unionization. It, to the extent that it has an effect, it's definitely you know, pro-union. I don't think there's any question about that. But how big an effect, it, I think it's, it's probably fairly small when it comes to actually getting people to sign cards. When does this legislation actually come into effect and when or how uh, might people be most likely, uh, non-union members, just members of the public, be, be most likely to notice it in their lives? It comes into effect 18 months after it gets royal assent. And it's it's only just been introduced in the past week or so. It has to go through the Commons process and the Senate process and so on. Given that members of like the NDP, that, that MPs were standing with Seamus O'Regan when he gave a, a little press conference after he introduced the bill, I, I don't think it's going to have a very hard time getting through Parliament, although just the logistics of getting a bill through, you know, the, the works are pretty gummed up for various reasons at the moment. But it is not, I mean, the government's in favor of it and their supply and confidence partners are in favor of it. So there's no question really that's going to be defeated. It's just a question of how long it takes to come in. And then it kicks in 18 months later to, I guess, give current labor processes that have begun under the current system kind of time to, to work through. And this is one of the complaints that that unions have is that actually it should it should kick in sooner. And one other thing is that it does not cover the federal government itself. So workers there are federally regulated, but not by this legislation. So eighteen months after it gets royal assent, whenever that might be on a quick schedule, I don't know, middle of next year. So eighteen months after that, then there would need to be a you know period for contracts to expire and be negotiated and negotiations to fail. So I, I wouldn't expect that the average person who is not in an affected unionized job or work for a unionized employer or run a unionized employer, if you happen to be the, the head of CN or something, probably it would be a while before they would detect much impact in their in their day-to-day lives. Until the next port closure. Until the next port closure, yeah. David, thank you so much for explaining this to us. It'll be fascinating to watch uh, the continued rise of the labor movement, I guess. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a really interesting subject. It's a treat to talk about it with you. David Reevely, Ottawa correspondent for The Logic. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca where you can find every last one of our episodes, well over 1,300 of them by now. I think we're close to 1,400, actually. You can talk to us about our next 1,400 episodes and what you'd like to see us cover. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can always write to us with your suggestions. The email address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can always call us up and talk as long as you want. Leave a voicemail. I actually think it'll probably cut you off after a few minutes, but say what you got to say. The phone number is 416-935-5935. The Big Story is in absolutely every podcast player everywhere. If you spot one that it's not in, 
let us know. We'll get it there. If you've got a smart speaker and you want to hear our show without doing a damn thing, just ask it to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.